you, George. Uh, thanks. It, it's a real privilege to be with you uh, today. Even though the topic I'm going to cover may not be the easiest topic, uh, I'm going to talk about fear. Not just because Halloween is looming, because I think we inhabit a culture of fear year-round. And it's increasingly the case that it marks our daily lives. There's lots of debate about the roots of the fear, the causes of the fear. That's not what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on the church's response to the culture of fear. And I want to begin with one answer that scripture provides to us, and that's from Romans 12. Uh, So I'd like to read Romans 12 verses 2 to 13 to begin uh, my reflection today. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully." Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Right in verse 2, we see it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. One defining pattern of our world today that Christians are called to resist is fear. I probably don't need to recite the evidence for this. We can see the fear in our daily lives. A 2019 survey, for example, has found that more than three-quarters of adults, 79% in the U.S., say they experience stress as a result of the possibility of a mass shooting. Nearly one in three adults, 32%, feel they cannot go anywhere without worrying about being a victim of a mass shooting. And nearly one quarter, 24%, of adults in America report changing how they live their lives because of fear of a mass shooting. We also express in surveys profound anxiety about terrorism, economic insecurity, new and intrusive forms of technology and artificial intelligence, the availability and affordability of health care, the environment, the possibility of nuclear war. That's just on big public issues. We have plenty of opportunities for fear in our personal lives when it comes to sickness, the death of loved ones, our kids who may be struggling, joblessness, marital strife. Fear can also be seen in our politics. In the United States, 70% of active Democrats say Republicans make them afraid. And 62% of active Republicans say the same thing about Democrats. Indeed, today we fear the opposing party much more than we agree with our own party. Only 16% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats say they almost always agree with their own party. It's seen in the younger generations. 
Fear can fill the void when trust is absent and trust is on the decline. When asked the question, can most people be trusted? 40% of baby boomers say yes. Among Generation X, that's born 1965 to 1980, 31% say yes. Among millennials, those born after 1980, just 19% say yes. So what do we do as Christians to resist the fear that often seems to define our world? Let's go back to Romans 12. If you're like me, you go right to verse 2 and you stay there. I am to resist the pattern of this world through the renewing of my mind. I like that. It's just me renewing my mind, sitting in a comfy chair in a quiet corner, reading the Bible or some C.S. Lewis, thinking big thoughts, maybe a retreat in a beautiful location. It sounds like an enticingly solitary endeavor. If Jesus is calling me to renew my mind, where do I sign up? I need some alone time. There is a place, to be sure, for solitude in our spiritual lives, Uh, but I I think that's what Paul is talking about. I'm ignoring the rest of Romans 12. I would also be misunderstanding the nature of fear that afflicts our world. Paul knew that fear derives from isolation, our isolation from God and from each other. We see that unmistakably in our world. In 1980, 20% of Americans described themselves as lonely. Today, 40% do. Last year, a study found that young adults age 18 to 22 are the loneliest age group in America, lonelier than the elderly. A recent survey of 150,000 students at more than 200 colleges and universities found that only 18% of full-time college students report hanging out with their friends for 16 hours per week or more. 18% of full-time college students report hanging out with their friends for 16 hours per week or more. This has dropped by half over the past 10 years. 68% of the college students surveyed reported feeling that no one knows them well. 68%. When we are known and loved and understood and affirmed, our fears subside. Any parent knows that. So what does Paul have to offer to help us resist the pattern of fear and isolation in our world? The renewal of our minds, yes, but not off in the corner by ourselves, by living as the body of Christ. Romans 12 is an overview of what it means to be the church, living in community, celebrating and supporting our different gifts, loving each other, sharing with one another, meeting each other's needs, embracing our interdependence, flourishing in our diversity, being the body of Christ. Fear, of course, is not new to our fallen world, though it takes different forms with every generation. When we look back over our history, the ones that run directly counter to a Christian understanding of human dignity have always, almost always, been motivated by fear. I'll offer three examples from my field, which is law. In the 1920s, the eugenics movement was at peak popularity in the United States, And many states had laws that permitted the forcible sterilization of individuals whom the government decided were unfit to bear children. They did this using bad science and wild assumptions about the inheritability of certain character traits. They had stoked fears that unless we exercised greater control over who was worthy to have children, we would be overwhelmed by the genetically weak and pitiful. 
Based on our fear, our government forcibly sterilized 70,000 women who were classified as unfit during this era, refusing to embrace their inescapable God-given dignity. During the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, black men were granted the right to vote. In many southern states, this caused great fear among the white population, so they passed a host of new voting rules, property ownership requirements, poll taxes, criteria for what they called good character, intense literacy tests that were administered only to blacks, all in an effort to deny blacks their right to vote. And it worked. In 1896, for example, Louisiana had 130,000 registered black voters. Eight years later, that number had dropped to 1,000 in the entire state. We were afraid of what might happen if blacks gained political power, so we excluded them from participation in our political community, refusing to embrace their inescapable God-given dignity. In the early 20th century, Protestant Americans were nervous about Catholic immigrants being more loyal to the Pope than to the Constitution. Some state legislators responded by outlawing Catholic schools. We were afraid of what those nuns might be teaching, so we shut them down completely and refused to permit Catholic parents to educate their children in their faith tradition, refusing to embrace their inescapable God-given dignity. The list goes on. Throughout human history, when fear grips us, we circle the wagons, we exclude, we sever, we isolate ourselves. We pull back from the world around us. We pull back from relationship. We can see the impact of fear in our nation's legal history, but that's not the primary venue where its grip is felt. We experience the impact of fear in how we encounter the other in our own lives, in our workplaces, in our families, our neighborhoods, even in our churches. Our culture tells us that the proper response to fear is to retreat from the scary world and surround ourselves with people who think, look, and live like we do. We use fear to justify our isolation. Jesus offers a different way. What's the connection between living as the body of Christ and overcoming fear? Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, quote, the church meets to imagine what our lives can be like if the gospel were true. The church meets to imagine what our lives can be like if the gospel were true. I'm going to highlight briefly three aspects of how this fellowship of Christians is an antidote to the fear that grips our culture. First, the body of Christ is where we encounter the stories of God's faithfulness, even in, especially in, the midst of suffering. We do not bear witness by showing that we're somehow immune from scary things. We bear witness through our lives of suffering that are nevertheless grounded in an ultimate hope in God's abiding presence. We testify to that through community, and we remind each other of that in community. These are the stories we speak of and sing of when we gather. We look to the past not as the good old days when there weren't reasons to be afraid. There have always been reasons to be afraid. Stories of our past remind us of God's faithfulness, and we encounter those stories in the body of Christ. So the first reason the body of Christ is an antidote to fear, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Second, The body of Christ is where we experience and embody the truth that God's radical love extends to every person, not just those who think and look like I do. 
as the scholar Philip Jenkins has written, by 2050, only one-fifth of the world's Christians will be non-Hispanic whites. The typical Christian will be a woman living in a Nigerian village or in a Brazilian shantytown. It's going to be a great reminder that God so loved the world really does mean that God so loved the world. He doesn't love based on zip code or national origin. I also think God makes sure that every congregation, perhaps even Wyzetta Free, has at least one person that you find super annoying. (laughs) It's God's way of nudging us, asking, did you really think my love for you was based on your winning personality? God's love is without condition and without exception. We experience that in the body of Christ. So the second reason the body of Christ is an antidote to fear, it's where we receive and reflect God's unconditional love. Third, the body of Christ connects us to one another in a way that keeps first things first. Our culture pushes us to define ourselves based on things that are not of eternal concern. And the body of Christ, by binding us to people with whom we often have nothing in common besides Jesus draws our eyes to what is of eternal concern. When we experience tension or discomfort with other people in our local churches, might that be a reminder of what the gospel calls the church to do and be? We are not called to be a club of friends who agree on everything. We're called to live out our differences in a community of Christ followers. So the third reason the body of Christ is an antidote to fear. It keeps our gaze on what we share as Christians and why that matters. The world wants to slice and dice us and put us in boxes based on our buying habits, voting habits, viewing habits, zip code, race, gender, age, Fox News or CNN, urban, suburban, rural, blue collar or white collar, red state, blue state. What Facebook posts do you share? What do you retweet? Infant or believer's baptism? Seeker-sensitive or traditional? Praise choruses or hymns? The world, sometimes even the Christian world, presumes that these characteristics define us, that these characteristics will provide our sense of security and comfort and identity. That is why Paul instructs the church that our differences do not define us. We do not exist in our boxes. Our differences invite us to be part of a much bigger story, a story that can only be told when we break out of our isolation and come into relationship. The foundation of our sense of security and comfort and identity is the same foundation that brings us back on Sundays to our frequently dysfunctional and frustrating local churches. Right in the middle of the world's beauty and pain and hope and loneliness and longing. We do not gather because we all think or look or vote alike. We gather because this is the place where an assortment of deeply flawed human beings meet Jesus. As Paul reminds us, we meet Jesus in and through and with each other. So what does this look like as the church goes out into the world? As Christians, are we helping build a culture of empathy? Are we breaking down obstacles to relationship? Or are we building them? 
couple of years ago, the Star Tribune did a survey on Black Lives Matter. Six percent of white Minnesotans had a favorable view of the group. Ninety-four percent of black Minnesotans had a favorable view of the group. Six percent, ninety-four percent. Those statistics are remarkable and sobering. Alienation breeds fear, which breeds more alienation, and the cycle continues. When protesters shut down I-94 in downtown Minneapolis, my initial reaction, I confess, was, oh boy, that tactic is hardly going to win over new supporters to this cause. On reflection, though, I asked myself, what would it take for me to walk out onto I-94 on a rainy night and stop traffic? What level of desperation would I have to feel? Such questions don't necessarily lead to consensus. We still might not agree, and that's fine. But such questions should enhance mutual understanding and start us down the path toward relationship. We have to recapture our capacity for empathy, and a diverse and outwardly engaged body of Christ can help us do so. As Christians, we have to resist the tendency that has become increasingly common throughout our culture to choose sides and then treat that choice as the end of moral reflection on the matter. This is where I stand, and I don't have to think about it anymore. We have to help each other walk in the shoes of those on both sides of our many social divides who are too easily demonized and to help build bridges across our differences. It requires long, difficult work to permit your story to shape my story, but it is work that has never been more important. In the, in the session after the service, I'm going to share more of my story on my journey of understanding race. And again, it really just is a journey offered for reflection. It's not a set of answers. It's not a set of positions. But it's a journey on what has become one of the most polarizing uh, issues in our society, not just in this era, but for hundreds of years, and that is, that is race. The gospel calls us to run toward those with whom we have very little in common, not with the primary aim of convincing them that we're right, but as vessels of God's love. The point in all this is not agreement, it's relationship. So what does it look like when the local church pays less attention to our differences and more attention to shining light in a fearful world? When I was seven years old, my dad left. Now, I have to point out that my dad's been walking with Jesus for many years, and I have a wonderful relationship with him today. Uh, but when I was seven, he sat us kids down and, and told us that he was leaving. Within what seemed to me a matter of minutes, our house was filled with people from our church. It turns out that my mom had called the church to ask everyone to pray just as they were starting the Sunday evening service. As soon as the pastor mentioned what was happening, a large group got up from the pews in the middle of the service and came over directly to our house. They spent the evening talking with us, hugging us, playing with us, praying with us. 
One couple even brought sleeping bags and slept on our floor overnight just to be present. This was a small church in a small town in Iowa. This was not an official family crisis intervention team. They had not been trained. They were not professionals. They were just regular folks who knew they needed to be there. They didn't even wait for my dad to actually leave. He was still packing his bags when they all showed up. (laughs) But they were there at the moment of crisis. In the years since, I've wondered about some of the conversations that must have occurred between those couples as they drove to our house. Wait, what are we going to say? What are we supposed to do? Shouldn't we wait a few days and give them some space? Don't they need privacy? This is going to be so awkward. No matter. They came. They did not make everything okay. They did not save my parents' marriage. My dad still left. I still experienced pain. But our small town church gave me a remarkable gift. Those men and women were the hands and feet and arms and voice and tears of Jesus on a night that was brimming with reasons for me to be afraid. Fast forward 40 years. I have no idea if those followers of Christ who came to our home that night agree with each other about worship music or President Trump or infant baptism or immigration or race relations or the ordination of women or climate change or any of the other issues that are supposed to define and divide us as Christians. Forty years later, here's what I do carry with me from that night when the body of Christ showed up in our home. The unshakable knowledge that when I am afraid, Jesus is with me. When the world says, be afraid, and pursue safety by isolating ourselves with people who think and look and live like we do, we must remind ourselves that our hope is built on the all-encompassing love of Jesus. And Jesus loves us in our crazy, sometimes maddening, differences and diversity. Our response to a culture of fear is not to retreat into the boxes that the world has set out for us. Our response to a culture of fear is to embrace more fully the body of Christ. In a fallen world that can be terrifying... Jesus does not promise us safety. He promises us himself. And he is enough. Let's pray. God, we are often so paralyzed by fear that we close ourselves off from receiving or reflecting your transforming love. Open our hearts, widen our embrace, refresh our spirits. As G.K. Chesterton said, we do not want a church that will move with the world. We We want a church that will move the world. 
more and more our world is moved by fear. Help us as the body of Christ to be the light that will heal division, restore relationships, and overwhelm fear through the love of Jesus. Amen.